Here's an interesting fact. Four is the only number that has the same number of alphabet characters as its value in the English language. And perhaps of more importance, there are also four parathyroid glands. Normal parathyroids are not visible or able to be felt during examination of the neck. They typically are two pairs of glands, most commonly found behind the left and right lobes of the thyroid. And when you hear the word parathyroid, your mind probably flashes to the image of an Indian rhinoceros because that is the magnificent animal they were first discovered in. What's that? You haven't seen an Indian rhino? Well, that's because the once very prominent animal has been hunted to near extinction, mostly a result of shooting them for the fun of it, while those not killed for sport are often slaughtered by poachers selling their body parts. Ah, humans, it's the great paradox of my life. I truly care for humans, but don't trust many of them. With that disclosure having been said, I will go on to say, this lecture is another part of a series on hypercalcemia and will focus on the diseases of hyperparathyroidism. To grasp all the concepts discussed, it's important to understand the previous discourse already had about hypercalcemia, and I will also try not to repeat the several things I've heretofore mentioned about hyperparathyroidism, though I warn you, I'm one of those guys that even when I know the past, I am doomed to repeat it. So, at a very basic level, when calcium levels increase, the calcium is sensed in a normal functioning parathyroid gland by the calcium sensing receptor. And as a result, there is a decrease in PTH secretion. Now I'm going to be saying PTH for parathyroid hormone frequently. The reverse of that is when calcium levels drop and you have healthy glands, PTH is secreted. So what does PTH do? In regards to calcium homeostasis, parathyroid hormone does a few things. PTH stimulates kidney production of vitamin D in the kidney, which then increases calcium absorption in the gut. PTH also activates bone resorption, meaning bone is dissolved and destroyed to increase calcium in the blood. And the fact that the body is willing to give up its bone calcium to maintain homeostasis shows how important calcium is to even more essential functions like nerve conduction, muscle contraction, and blood clotting. At the same time, PTH tells the kidneys to reabsorb calcium and therefore not to excrete the calcium in the urine. What our bodies try and do at all moments is try and maintain homeostasis. The parathyroid glands are one of the remarkable players in calcium homeostasis. So what's going on in hyperparathyroidism? Well, what's happening is the cycle of PTH responding to calcium levels is broken. PTH is secreted even though the calcium levels are high enough that PTH should be suppressed. And this keeps the calcium at an elevated level. You can look at calcium as the employee and PTH as the boss. Initially, PTH says to calcium, I'm not being bossy, I just know what you should be doing, which is tolerable at first because PTH has an open-door policy and is open to suggestions. But slowly the door closes and the relationship starts becoming toxic. PTH starts acting more autonomously, 
without acknowledging feedback from its employee calcium. PTH starts saying stuff like, don't look at me calcium as if I'm bossy, look at me as someone that has leadership skills. And then calcium starts thinking to himself, man, this PTH boss is like a diaper, always on my ass and full of you know what. It gets to a point that PTH doesn't even listen to calcium anymore. He just pushes calcium ever harder, thinking that boosting performance up to insane levels is better for the company, while in reality, that behavior only starts amassing more problems for everybody. <sighs> That's my jaundiced attempt to explain primary hyperparathyroidism, clearly after a week of too much hospital administration meetings and too little patient care. But... Before we talk about primary hyperparathyroidism in more medical terms, I should step back and mention secondary hyperparathyroidism. So what is secondary hyperparathyroidism? Nearly every provider that cares for sick patients has seen cases of secondary hyperparathyroidism. It occurs in patients with later stage chronic kidney disease. Later stage renal disease can result in low vitamin D levels because there is decreased kidney conversion of vitamin D, meaning the normal healthy kidneys hydroxylates the storage form of vitamin D to its active form known as 1,25-dihydroxyvitamin D. Very diseased kidneys don't do that. If you have low vitamin D levels, you develop hypocalcemia, which then stimulates parathyroid hormone. This process can happen quickly because PTH responds quickly to hypocalcemia. So don't think that it takes a long time to develop secondary hyperparathyroidism because it can happen rapidly. The other problem in chronic renal failure is that when the kidneys are not functioning well, there is increased phosphate retention. That decreased renal phosphate excretion causes hyperphosphatemia. That also causes secondary hyperparathyroidism. PTH normally inhibits reabsorption of phosphate by the kidney. When phosphorus levels are elevated, the PTH gets secreted to try and get the kidneys to excrete the phosphorus. Therefore, PTH is secreted to respond to the hypocalcemia, the low vitamin D, and to respond to hyperphosphatemia. If the patient remains in that state of secondary hyperparathyroidism for a long time, it can evolve into a state of autonomous PTH secretion and resulting hypercalcemia that we call tertiary hyperparathyroidism. We try to avoid tertiary hyperparathyroidism with phosphate-binding medication, because if tertiary hyperparathyroidism occurs, surgery is often needed to control it. So once again, the treatment for secondary hyperparathyroidism involves the use of a combination of phosphate binders and also supplementing vitamin D and calcium. Remember, if you see hypocalcemia and hyperphosphatemia with an elevated PTH, in renal patients think secondary hyperparathyroidism. Much more could be said about that topic, though that's not where the focus of this talk will be. I will mostly be discussing primary hyperparathyroidism. What caused the biggest jump in the frequency of hyperparathyroidism diagnosis? The answer is the routine addition of calcium 
to automated blood panels like basic metabolic panels. Remember that chemistry panels include the total calcium, which is the free calcium and albumin-bound calcium. So if the albumin is low, you need to adjust the calcium level or get an ionized calcium because that is not affected by albumin levels. But the bigger point not to be lost is that when we find hypercalcemia doing lab tests for other reasons, most of those patients will have asymptomatic hypercalcemia. When we do find hypercalcemia, if the diagnosis isn't obvious, most of us proceed to sending a serum PTH level. That is because primary hyperparathyroidism is the most common cause of hypercalcemia. An elevated PTH concentration in the setting of hypercalcemia is almost certainly primary hyperparathyroidism. However, about 15% of patients with primary hyperparathyroidism will have a PTH concentration in the upper end of the normal range. That so-called normal level is not normal because the PTH level should be suppressed in the presence of hypercalcemia. Therefore, a high normal PTH in hypercalcemia is consistent with a diagnosis of primary hyperparathyroidism. When you see suppressed PTH with elevated calcium levels, the majority of the time the patient will be much more likely to have malignancy or possibly the other hypercalcemic etiologies like calcium supplementation, high vitamin D intake, thiazides, and other factors discussed in the first hypercalcemia lecture. Please note that the PTH-related protein that's found in malignancy does not cross-react with modern PTH assays. So a malignancy-causing hypercalcemia suppresses PTH. Most cases of primary hyperparathyroidism are sporadic, but there are some risk factors that increase chances of getting primary hyperparathyroidism. For example, radiation to the neck does increase your risk. It also can be genetic, such as in familial multiple endocrine neoplasia syndromes, specifically MEN1 and MEN2A. What might tip you off that maybe you are dealing with a multiple endocrine neoplasia? Those patients tend to present at a younger age with more severe disease. And then the obvious big tip-off is other tumors, such as pancreatic and pituitary tumors happening with hyperparathyroidism. The most common parathyroid abnormality is benign parathyroid adenomas. Rarely will there be a palpable neck mass with a benign parathyroid adenoma. Sometimes patients will have hyperplasia of multiple parathyroid glands. There can even be foregland hyperplasia, but a single benign adenoma is much more common. On rare occasion, parathyroid cancer is present, but that is less than 1% of cases. One of the things that would raise concern about parathyroid carcinoma is an extremely high PTH level. If you can actually feel a neck mass on exam, that should also raise suspicion for cancer. Do you need imaging to diagnose hyperparathyroidism? And the answer to that is no, particularly if surgery will not be undertaken. The only reason to image is in certain situations for someone definitely getting a parathyroidectomy, and not all of those patients getting surgery 
need imaging. So it's really a preoperative test and not a diagnostic test. Let's take a moment to talk about preoperative localization of hyperfunctioning parathyroid tissue. Parathyroid glands are notorious for not playing fair, meaning they are not always where you think they will be. There can be an ectopic gland, even on rare occasion that gland might be in the mediastinum. But if there has not been prior neck surgery, a foregland exploration under anesthesia may be all that is needed. And a surgical cure will occur in the overwhelming majority of patients without pursuing preoperative localization. Surgeons send intraoperative rapid PTH assays for monitoring, and if the level drops 50% or more, they can feel assured they remove the hyperfunctioning parathyroid tissue. The cure rate of parathyroidectomy is about 95%. If you had prior neck surgery, getting preoperative localization may be prudent. Likewise, some surgeons may prefer to do preoperative localization with imaging technology as part of their way of doing things. That will particularly be the case if the surgeon uses minimally invasive parathyroidectomy because the surgeon tries to only operate at the site of the abnormal gland. Now, talking with some surgeons at a dinner recently, they explained they have been burned by preoperative imaging where the concerning gland on imaging turned out not to be the parathyroid gland responsible for the elevated PTH. If you are going to pursue preoperative localization with imaging, none are perfect, including MRI, ultrasound, or CT. A parathyroid cestamoebe may be the best as far as sensitivity and specificity, but again, it's not perfect. So let's talk about surgery for primary hyperparathyroidism. Patients with symptomatic primary hyperparathyroidism should usually proceed to surgery if their operative risk from other comorbidities and mortality prognosis from other conditions doesn't contraindicate surgery. Preoperatively, if the hypercalcemia is significant, medical therapy like fluids and calcium-lowering medication can be indicated, and my next lecture will focus on medical management of hypercalcemia. Now, getting back to parathyroidectomy, symptomatic patients should get it done, and asymptomatic patients may or may not want to get the operation done. One of my favorite novelists is Margaret Atwood, who said, when nothing is sure, everything is possible. And along those lines, there simply isn't great long-term data, nor great randomized trials comparing surgery versus not doing surgery in primary hyperparathyroidism in asymptomatic patients. Uncertainty is an uncomfortable place for both the patient and physician, but such is often the practice of medicine. Also, new minimally invasive surgical techniques and better localization will develop, and the risk-benefit ratio of surgery may be altered in time. The same can be said for medications. If our arsenal of pharmaceuticals improves for managing hyperparathyroidism, then surgery indications will also change. Bone mineral density will usually improve after surgery, and that is one of the major arguments made by those who favor surgery for asymptomatic hyperparathyroidism. It makes sense to me that if the asymptomatic patient is expected to live for a long time, that a parathyroidectomy is a reasonable option. 
Now, the guidelines published in 2009 also note that asymptomatic patients go on to develop symptoms of hyperparathyroidism about a third of the time. Now, that's important to keep in mind because if your patient develops nephrolithiasis and then gets a parathyroidectomy, their chance of recurrence for nephrolithiasis is rare. And the data supporting that comes from a study published in the December 1987 issue of the journal called Surgery in an article titled The Effect of Parathyroidectomy on the Recurrence of Nephrolithiasis. So it ultimately depends how you look at the data. On the one hand, some have taken the same statistics and argue that the majority of those with asymptomatic primary hyperparathyroidism will not progress to symptomatic disease. So they look at that fact and they say it's too aggressive to get surgery in asymptomatic people. Therefore, the experts periodically get together. Most recently, they slogged away in Orlando, Florida, and revised the guidelines on which patients without symptoms really need surgery. At least they pick a state that has some sun so they can get some vitamin D. By the way, for those that don't know, what does the average Florida State University student get on their SATs? Drool. Okay, so which asymptomatic patients should proceed to parathyroidectomy according to the guidelines? It's probable that these guidelines will change as this debate is not totally settled, but for the moment, the guidelines state that surgery is indicated in asymptomatic patients who meet any one of the following conditions. If the serum calcium concentration is one milligram per deciliter or more above the upper limit of normal, probably should get a parathyroidectomy. If the creatinine clearance is reduced to less than 60, probably should get a parathyroidectomy. If the bone density at the hip, lumbar spine, or distal radius is more than 2.5 standard deviations below peak bone mass, meaning a T-score of less than negative 2.5, and or previous fragility fracture, probably should get a parathyroidectomy. And if you're young and age less than 50, we don't want to see the ravages of hypercalcemia over time, and those patients should probably get a parathyroidectomy. So all that being said, if the patient or you are not excited about proceeding to surgery, you can take measures to lower the calcium and maximize bone mineral density, and then periodically test calcium and bone mineral density to help guide future decisions. How often should you check bone mineral density? Some articles say every one to two years, based on what evidence, I don't know. But like Socrates said, I know that I am intelligent because I know that I know nothing. You have been listening to the Hospital and Internal Medicine Podcast with your host, Dr. Gil Parat. Wishing you a positive day and catch you on the next round.